Yeah, give him a hand. Well, if you uh, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 14, I will remind you that Mike and Jen, um, it's not like they, uh, uh, when they were in first grade and they were thinking about what they want to do with their lives, going to Chile was not the uh, choice or option. In fact, I think you could have talked to them two years ago and they would have said, what the snarf are you talking about? But God has taken two people that are normal people um, and birthed in them uh, a desire and, and, and a new uh, call to go down there. So it's exciting to see that happen. And if we're able to partner with this organization, we also will have um, just a more regular way for to participate in missions for anybody who's feeling that, that itch or that call. So it's pretty exciting. Well, we're in Matthew 14, and I'm going to read uh, the text, which is uh, uh, verse 13 to 21. It says this, Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. And now when when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, We have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. And he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. And he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied, and they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about five thousand men, besides women and children. This is God's word. And I will warn you that for about uh, seven eighths of this sermon, you're going to feel deeply convicted. But the last eighth is awesome, so get ready, okay? Um, that was my experience in studying this, and it works well with the Chile uh, presentation. I didn't even think about that. But this week we've returned to the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, we basically go through books of the Bible verse by verse, and we're in Matthew 14. I did preach the very beginning of it, but I'll reference it today um, a while back. But just by way of reminder, so you understand, for those who may be new or unfamiliar, Matthew, uh, the Gospel writer, was a tax collector, and Tax collectors were considered like the example of a sinner by Jews. And according to the Romans, they viewed them as no better than brothel owners. So tax collectors were despised by everyone. They were the 1% who actually did rob their own people of life in order to create a life for themselves. So because of his position and his disposition, Matthew possessed the ambition to abuse, because that meant more money for him. He had the authority under Rome to extort and the power to imprison. And this was the hated man that Jesus chose as one of his disciples. He called him one day to follow him out of the tax booth, and Matthew responded immediately, and his life was changed. And he abandoned everything about his old life. He left his wealth, 
He left his position, he left his power, he left his security. And much like Paul, the apostle, who went from being a a murderer of Christians to being martyred for his faith, Matthew as well went from being an extorter, if you will, a money maker, money collector, to also being martyred for his faith. Most likely in Ethiopia. So as a tax collector, Matthew was incredibly greedy. But he was also actually very well educated and highly organized. And so this kind of gifting that God had given this slimeball turned saint, he was well suited to write what became the Gospel of Matthew. And this was uh, basically the first kind of theological textbook that the church had, the early church had. And it was super important because it didn't just record what Jesus did. It actually was the book that contained the most of what Jesus said. And interestingly enough, apart from lists of disciples in the various Gospels, you never really hear anything about what Matthew does. And so that leaves us to see that basically... um, the gospel that he wrote was his ministry. That was what he left us. That was what he was called to. It's what we're using thousands of years later to learn more about Jesus. Now, Scripture says that, that when Jesus saves an individual, he actually gives us not just life, but a little bonus gift. It's called a ministry. And in 2 Corinthians 5, which you may be familiar with, it's the verse that, or section of verses that begins that if anyone is a new in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And we say, praise Jesus. And then we say, well, keep reading. Because as you keep reading, in verse 18 it says, all this is from God, amen. That was our whole five-part series last week, or last five weeks. It's all from God, this transformation. He does it all. He gets the glory. Who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to Himself and not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, having this ministry and having this message that we've been entrusted with, we are, not we should be, we are ambassadors. Christ. God making His appeal through us. So the word for ministries really comes from the word to serve. And I would add that that ministry, just the definition that I'm going to work with generally, is service by, with, and for Jesus. Service by, with, and for Jesus. Now, the ministry of a Christian, if you Confess that Jesus is your Lord if you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. If you have placed your trust that I am saved because of the work Jesus has done and my work will never satisfy, if that's you, the ministry that you have is to represent Christ to the world through service. And this kind of service, I believe, involves all kinds of things. The head and the heart and the hands and But what it looks like for each of us is different. God has made us different, put us in different contexts, so not all of us are going to be Moseses, not all of us are going to be Matthews, not all of us are going to be Pauls. 
Not all of us are going to lead a rebellion or, or write a gospel or plant a church. But we're all called to serve. We're all called to minister. This is the kind of king that Je- like the king reveals himself to be, right? He says, I didn't come though you should serve me. I didn't come to be served. I came to serve. And so this is the kind of people that he calls us to be. And one might think, right? One might think that serving the world, loving the world, might make you popular and well-liked. But on the contrary, it killed Jesus. It killed Jesus. Right? The one who served perfectly, being sinless, he did it all right. He did it perfectly, and it resulted in his death. So why would we ever expect our experience to be different? Genuine service, genuine Christ-like service, genuine Christ-like ministry is going to tire you out. It's going to disrupt your plans. It is going to reveal your weaknesses, but here's the eighth part. It's going to satisfy your soul. Now chapter 14 kind of begins in a strange way that that I didn't read, but I'll reference. It begins with the report of the death of John the Baptist. Now, the fame of Jesus' ministry, right? He's doing all these miracles in and around Galilee, and Herod the Tetrarch, which is Herod Antipas, who is the one of the sons of Herod the Great. He's a Tetrarch, which means he's one of four leaders in this area. He hears about it and goes, oh my gosh, John the Baptist is risen from the dead because he had killed him. Now, Herod was a a bad, bad dude. And he had actually married, um, Herod Antipas that is, had been married to the daughter of an Arab king, which is a problem right there, for about 20 years. And he later fell in love with the wife of his half-brother as he's married who legally was his niece named Herodias. So, still married, he decides to propose to her. Brilliant. And Herodias, being just as smart, accepts, as she's married too, and her only condition was that he divorces his wife, his princess. Well, she catches wind of it, flees away, goes and lives with her Arab king dad's land. And so Herod's like, all right, all clear. Let's do this. And he marries his niece. And his marriage is messed up for all kinds of reasons, but basically it's unlawful, immoral, and illegitimate. Now, John had spent most of his life preaching a baptism of repentance. 
Okay, so basically John's job, his ministry, was devoted to telling people to turn from their sin. Okay, that was what it amounted to. You're a sinner. You are evil. Stop sinning and repent. And like an Old Testament prophet, he didn't mince words with false teachers, with false leaders. He just called them out, especially religious and political ones. And that did not make him popular. It made him very hated, as most prophets were. He publicly attacked Herod and this marriage he had, and that landed him in prison. They put him in a fortress on the eastern side of the Dead Sea, and he was probably in prison for about a year until he was eventually beheaded. So why would Matthew put this feeding the 5,000 right after John the Baptist? Because it's not like that in all of the Gospels. And I believe what he's trying to do is set a stage, and that is this. Serving like Jesus is choosing to suffer like Jesus. The world will hate you for serving it. The world will kill you if you're loving enough to tell it the truth. This is what I think it means to share in the ministry of Jesus. John did everything he was supposed to do. We realize that, I hope. He did everything right. And he suffered because he did. Ministry did not make him popular. Ministry did not make him prosperous. Ministry did not make him powerful. Ministry made him dead. Serving the Lord does not always end well. If you go read Hebrews 11, you'll see that most of the stories of men who served God ended poorly. Ministry is costly. Ministry is costly. And so that sets the stage as this feeding the 5,000 seemingly disconnected happens. When Jesus heard the report of the death of John the Baptist, he got in a boat and he sailed to a desolate place, which he was probably in Capernaum and he was probably sailing to the kind of peak of the lake. And in, in essence, he wanted to be alone. He wanted to be alone with his disciples. And according to the, the passages, the same story in Mark chapter 6 and Luke chapter 9, it's also in John. Those passages show that, that Jesus actually withdrew, not just after he heard the report, but he had just sent the disciples out to minister. And they had just come back after being in all the villages and preaching the gospel and calling people to repent and being kicked out, son of them at some of them, and doing miracles and all these things, and they came back, and they're telling Jesus all these things that's happened. Then he hears John's dead, and he's like, hey guys, let's get, let's get out of here. The Gospel of Mark states it this way, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught, and he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, they had no leisure even to eat. And so, the intention of Jesus was to get away for a little bit from doing ministry 
And I think it's beautiful to see the humanity of Jesus here. Let's not forget that Jesus lived a fully human life. Which means what? Occasionally, Jesus needed a nap and a sandwich. And that's comforting. And that just went out, didn't it? It's a smoke come up, like the Holy Spirit, like rad. But there's a comfort in the fact that, you know what, when you're doing ministry, you don't got to be Superman. Jesus, perfect Jesus, need to rest. Jesus and His disciples need to take a break because ministry, which is service by, with, and for Jesus, is tiring work. A man or a woman, a servant of the Lord, can only have so much energy go out of them until they're just empty. You eventually empty out. And you need to refill. Paul describes ministry often as toil, as labor, as striving. Ministry is supposed to be and is hard work, and those who serve the Lord get tired. And I want you to be careful to remember this, that this is not just the experience of pastors. All Christians are supposed to be spent for Jesus. Spent for Jesus. I mean, if Jesus lost everything for us, surely I can lose something. Paul would say everything for him. He said in Philippians 3.8 that indeed I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as garbage in order that I may gain Christ. Now there are lots of things that make us tired. Right? Work tires us out. We spend a third of our life there. If you're a mom, you get tired out at your work too. Probably more than those who go to real jobs. Right? Some are doing both. Parenting, hard work. I think the hardest. That tires me out more than anything. House maintenance, wiped out. Right? Gotta wipe out, clean out those gutters again. Need paint again. Got to vacuum again. Got to fix this again. Why can't something just not break for a week? Kid sports. You get more than one kid, crazy. Wipes you out. Even vacations, right? Vacations that turn into trips, right? This is not a vacation. This is a trip. My vacation will start when my kids are in bed and I get to go to sleep. Well, let me ask you a really hard question. Because I know those things wipe us out. When was the last time you were wiped out from serving the Lord? When was the last time you just, you just overextended yourself for Jesus? When was the last time that you just you had served and sacrificed so much? I'm not telling you where that is. I'm not saying that's church on Sunday morning. Just... 
your service to the Lord, whatever it looked like, when was the last time when you were so wiped out you just hit the pillow like, oh, I'm just tired, Lord, and you went to bed? I do believe that Christ-like ministry is a sacrifice of time and energy and resources, and there is an emotional and physical and mental toll that it takes, and those who truly minister need rest. I never, I never want to be tired of ministry, but I think we should all desire to be tired in ministry. And so if you are tired in ministry, and this is where I'm, my idol, ready, here comes my heart, my idol is achievement, my, my despair and joy is dependent upon how much I accomplish, so I have to be very careful because, hey, I don't got time to sleep. I got to get stuff done that can kill you. I don't want to be one of those pastors in the fetal position calling Brian like, "Hey, can you preach on Sunday? I'm dead." But the truth is, if if you are tired of ministry, it is good and right to take time and make space to rest. But there are those people who need rest, and then honestly, there's a lot of us who are tired because we got too much rest. You ever had that experience where you sleep too much and you're just kind of groggy? Take that into the spiritual world. I sometimes wonder if some of us are just tired. I just need a season of rest. Like maybe you need to be done rest. Maybe your rest now is actually making you more restful, i.e., lazy. There's times to rest, and, and I think that we need to, but at the same time, we have to be careful. Ministry is hard work. And never forget this. Jesus takes them away to rest, right? Rest from ministry isn't ever accomplished. I should say, it is accomplished by going away from the crowds, but not from going away from Jesus. Right? You don't take a vacation from Jesus. That's really important. That's not rest. We rest with Jesus. He wants to rest with us. But ministry is tiring. It should be tiring. And we have to ask ourselves, man, am I, why am I tired? And have I ever been tired because of service? So as tired Jesus travels on this boat, right? They get in the boat. They go along the sea. And what happens? The crowds are following along the coast. What do you think the disciples are thinking? Peter, look at that. Andrew, check it. Look where the, they're going to meet us over there. What do you think they're thinking? All right, they're tired. They're hungry. This ain't going to be much of a vacation, Jesus. Crowds are going to meet us over there. What they expected as rest suddenly turned into work. As I was reading this, it reminded me of something very clear. The ministry is without doubt tiring, and it's also incredibly inconvenient. The needs of people don't ever seem to perfectly fit my budget or calendar. Really inconvenient. Ministry rarely ever happens when you're ready. And it rarely ever comes up at the opportune time, right? 
they usually disrupt what are normal rhythms and expectations, and that's why it gets so frustrating. But I would argue this, that if, if our service to Jesus doesn't force us to make some kind of lifestyle sacrifices, it's probably not really service to Jesus. Like, if we're trying to avoid the inconvenience of ministry, I'm pretty sure we are not going to minister because it's never convenient. And really, the the question is not whether ministry is going to be inconvenient or not. The question is, how are you going to respond when it is? Is it going to be an opportunity, or is it just going to be an interruption? And how are you going to deal with that? Jesus and His disciples deal with this very differently. When we read the stories, we always read ourselves as Jesus when we need to read ourselves as the disciples. Jesus was sinless. He did it right. We don't. We are not. We're the disciples. What does Jesus do? Here's the beautiful thing about Jesus. And and I want to be careful because I know when you start talking about service and and working, that kind of thing, people start getting all fidgety because they're really uncomfortable with being told you should do something. Let me just make clear. And I think that I heard, might have been this from Rich Mullins, I don't know. We listened to a lot of it earlier. But Jesus does love us for who we are not who we should be. Because the truth is, none of us are who we should be. You hear that? Jesus loves you for who you are, not who you should be, because none of us are who we should be. At the same time, Jesus gives us a picture of what it would look like if we were. See, Jesus embraces the interruption. Jesus views the inconvenience as an opportunity to serve. When Jesus comes ashore and the crowd's like, hey, it's us. What does it say in the text that Jesus does? He sees the sheep as those without a shepherd, right? And it says it in another gospel, but he does see them. He doesn't try to ignore them. He sees, looks at them. And then he feels compassion for them. And then he acts upon that feeling. And he begins to heal the sick and help the broken, right? He he desires to serve at his own expense. He is tired. He is hungry. What do the disciples do? They don't see sheep without a shepherd. They see a crowd of problems. They feel irritated, inconvenienced, threatened. And what do they act? They act to avoid helping. As the sun begins to go down, the hungry and tired disciples who still have not rested, still have not eaten, they go to Jesus and they say, okay, just... um, we don't got any safe ways out here. Rome hadn't invented it yet. So go and send them to the villages and let them get some food. Right? Over 5,000 people. They're not going to Safeway in the little village, right? That's like send them away. 
5,000 people aren't going to go into one little village and eat. So you send them away. They'll, they can get some, they, they'll figure it out. They're all adults. Well, at least 5,000 of them. There might be kids there too. And I think the interesting thing is in the report of Mark, the disciples had already counted the cost. They had already figured like there's no way with what we have that we're going to be able to feed them. They knew they didn't have enough money to buy food even. They came that like, dude, we don't have enough money to buy food for all these people. And I was wondering, what are they feeling? Maybe they, they feared that they... But the, maybe it's really good, like, well, we just don't have, the crowds aren't going to get enough. We can't feed just a couple of them. So maybe that's really benevolent, possibly. Perhaps they fear that they're not going to get enough. In that moment of what should have been an opportunity, and they saw it as an interruption, they actually just simply forgot who they were with. The guy they had seen do miracles more than once. So here's the question, right? When, when you're approached with a need, doesn't have to be necessarily a, a, someone who's homeless coming to you. It could be all kinds of needs. Is your first response, man, this is an opportunity or this is an interruption? I'll be honest with you. I think I probably see it as interruption, interruptions more than opportunity. And I'm a pastor. But that's my flesh, right? Oh, are you serious? Gonna take my time again. Who's calling me? Oh my god. And some of you right now, I called him this week. Oh my god. Don't take it personally. It's about me, it's not about you. And I start thinking, like, what are the reasons that I use to justify why I'm trying to avoid help? Why I let it go to voicemail? Why I just don't got the time to drive you up to Safeway, homeless guy, to get you a card. I've really got to type something on my computer. I mean, I'd like to help, but I don't have enough for you. There's one. Or, well, what I have, it won't help you. Or, I'm not, I don't have enough for me. See, I think that's where it is, actually. I think I'm more fearful about what it's going to take from me. If I give to you, I won't have this. It will hurt me in some way. I'm, I'm sorry, I just can't serve, I can't love, I can't help. Do we realize that in all of our need that we had before the Lord, it wasn't His responsibility to help either? And yet He did. And that every time I'm deficient, which is pretty much every day, He never, ever, 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 ever views it as an interruption. He spared no expense and continues to spare no expense to meet me and to serve me and to help me and to love me. He spared no expense to the extent of giving up position, power, wealth, 
Ministry is inconvenient. And we all have our excuses. I have my excuses. You have your excuses. And they're sinful. We just call it what it is. It's sinful. Our spirit is willing and our flesh is weak. And so Jesus disagrees with their solution. Right? And he says, no, you guys give them something to eat. And the disciples go, well, they're like, they've already thought this through. Well, we only have five fish and a couple loaves, Jesus. Sorry. I mean, how many times have we dealt with it the Lord? Right? We know a need in the church. We'll just start there. In our family. In our neighborhood. Well, I only have... And I gotta pay my cell bill. I know you need to eat. I read this recently, or was, and then this might be inaccurate, but I think it's accurate that there are more dwellings in the United States vacant than there are actually homeless who could fill them. Welcome to our culture. And if you don't think that we are guilty in some way, like, well, I don't have an extra dwelling laying around, like, you know what I'm talking about. We have a culture that is self-centered and is unwilling to serve and to help. And we have good-sounding excuses we use to justify our sin. And I'm guilty, and you are guilty, and we are sinful, and we are not serving like Christ. But guess what? He still loves us. Ministry is hard. That's why we avoid it. Did you know that the feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle that's in all four Gospels? But in Matthew's account, it's the only place where the command to bring them here to me appears. We only got five fish. Bring them here. See, Jesus wants us desperate for Him. And when we throw ourselves headfirst into genuine service that requires faith, it doesn't take long to realize I really don't have much to help. I mean, I've got some stuff, but man, this is a big problem and Jesus better show up, otherwise this is not going to help. Christ-like ministry will demand you're dependent upon God. And if whatever way you're serving, if it's not really dependent upon God, it's not really serving like Christ. I think a lot of us, and I again, I'm just as guilty. I've beat myself up with this all week, sat on this. This is your turn now. But a lot of us have positioned our lives in such a way to never really have to depend upon Jesus. Like, we don't need Jesus to show up in our life to maintain our security and success. Our lives in have been made so secure, our giving so measured, our service so comfortable that we really don't need faith. I mean, have we positioned our lives in such a way as to really never have to depend upon Jesus? Have we made sure we always have enough so we just really don't have to ask God for help? I think a lot of us have refused to follow Jesus 
into those desolate places where there's nothing but Jesus because we assume we won't have enough fill in the blank. The truth is, when you follow Jesus in desolate places, you won't have enough, and you'll realize that, and that will make you dependent upon Him. Beautiful. He wants us in the desolate places with Him at the point where, like, man, I've got opportunities to help, and I better bring it to Jesus. But I only have this much. Better bring it to Jesus. Desolate places of great need is, I believe, where Jesus does His best work. And it's possible it's where He does His only work. After Jesus, they bring Him the bread. What does He do? He thanks God, and He breaks the bread. And we're not really sure where the miracle was. Is He just like, you know, it's just going out? Is it like, here you go, guys? And then they're like, like, I don't know what it looked like, but suddenly all these people got food. And I love that he, he gives the bread to his disciples so that they will serve like 12 guys. Think about this. 12 guys serve 5,000 adults. Well, 5,000 men is what they're counting. So there's women and children. It could be upwards of 10. 12 disciples serving, let's say, 7,000 people. How long do you think that took? It was hard work. Disciples were tired. They were hungry. And they went and they served. And Jesus uses the little they have and increase the power of whatever it was. Catch this. Everyone. Everyone, 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 everyone has something to give. I'm not talking about dollars. I'm talking about lives and everything included. Everyone has something to give. And no amount of giving and service, whatever it is, is small in the eyes of Christ. If you want to just take it yourself, go ahead. But he doesn't say it. He says, just bring it to me. Watch what I do with it. Bring it to me. Watch what I do with it. And he's not prospering it for you. Right? That's the prosperity gospel. I'll bring you a little bit and I'll get a bunch back. No! He is increasing it for others. He's taking that little insignificant thing you have, that little bit of time you think is just, ah, that's just not, that's nothing. The little bit of energy, that little bit of gifting, that little bit of money goes, boom, look what I can do. Also, we will glory in Him. Not in us. Because if you've got a pile enough to feed 5,000 people, who are you thinking about? It ain't Jesus. Like, look how benevolent I am. I'm so glad that I am so giving because I just blessed 5,000 people. You know what the disciples are thinking? Oh, we have little faith. Jesus, you're amazing. Oh, we have little faith who did not believe you could do something. I wondered what they're thinking when he's blessing it, right? They're like... We'll see. And then what they thought when it suddenly started producing and reproducing. The other piece I want to make sure of is this. 
let's not get stuck in the theory of the mind of like, you know what, I'm just going to think positive thoughts towards people and, and help them with my attitude. I think there's a reason why this actual parable, or I'm sorry, story is in all four Gospels as well, because it shows us this, that actually Christ cares about physical needs. He actually cares about serving those in need and helping them in tangible ways. James talks about that. He says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving him the things that they need for the body, what good is that? It's not, do I preach Jesus to them and tell them Jesus loves them or just give them socks? Give them socks, give them some food, give them some money and say, Jesus loves me and I love you because of it. It's a both and. I think a lot of us get really good at service of the mind. Service of the mouth. But not service with the hands. Imagine, can you just imagine for a second a church of people trusting that who they are right now and what they have right now can be used for God right now. Imagine a church full of servants who never wait for someone else to step up. Who don't make excuses about what they don't have. Who refuse to dwell on what they don't or can't or haven't accomplished. Of people who are always asking, why not, where now, what's possible, and when it seems ridiculous, when the need seems overwhelming, like seriously, 5,000 plus people, when you get in those ridiculous situations, we take what we have, we trust it to God who will supply whatever is missing. That would be a church that transforms itself and the world around it. A church who believes that if Jesus lost everything for me, surely I can be tired out. I can be interrupted. I can lose energy and money and resources Just to close us out with the eighth part. See, Jesus is ministering to the physical needs of the people, but guess what? He's ministering to the spiritual needs of his disciples as well. As I said, you got 12 disciples feeding, serving more than 5,000 people, and they're hungry and tired before they even started. But what does Matthew record? They all ate and were satisfied. The reason we don't serve, the reason we don't give in ways that hurt us so that we know it's sacrificial, is because we truly believe the lie that it will not be satisfying. It will only be loss. It will only hurt me. I believe in this case the crowd's were satisfied by the food, and I actually believe the disciples were deeply satisfied through their serving. We see that there's 12 baskets of bread left over, right? 
one for each disciple. And I'm sure there's all kinds of symbolism for this, but here's how I look at it. These guys haven't eaten anything yet. And they're hungry and tired, and Jesus says, go serve these people. And like, okay. Imagine probably as they go out, well, we're not going to get any. They don't eat first, they eat last. And when they get done, they got a whole stinking basket to themselves. And what do you think Jesus is thinking like that? Told you guys, right? You thought you were going to be satisfied with five fish and a couple loaves among the 12 of you? I just gave you a whole stinking basket. Through service came satisfaction. Through service came fulfillment. Through service came glory. Without them serving in that way, it wouldn't have happened. And guess what? They didn't go into service going, well, if I do this, I'm going to have a basket afterwards. They didn't know. How many times do we do that? Well, I'm going to serve, but I know this has come back to me tenfold. That's not the motivation. The motivation is the fact that Christ has already given you a full basket. And if you don't see that, if you don't see that you've already been made rich in Christ, and you've already been given life in Christ, that there's an eternal inheritance waiting for you that is greater than any weight of glory imaginable, I can understand why you don't serve. But when you see you have nothing to lose and everything to gain in terms of deep heart-level satisfaction, you'll give it all away. Jesus always has more than enough. And unfortunately, our flesh is always more apt to count the cost than the blessings. This is what it's going to cost. Like, do you understand what it... I don't know if you've ever served in such a way and given in such a way where you know, you're guaranteed you're never going to get anything back. And how satisfying that feels. When we went down to Honduras and built a house for that single mom who was never going to see us again and had never seen us before that time, and we just walked in and said, Jesus loves us. That's why we love you. Bye-bye. And it felt so satisfying. We were crying. Don't believe the lie that service to Christ is not satisfying. I will argue that it's the only satisfying thing. Our flesh doesn't believe that satisfaction can come from sacrificial service, but Jesus proved it was true. Last verse, Isaiah 53, verse 11. This is the chapter of Christ's sacrifice. Verse 11 says that out of the anguish of His soul, He shall see and be satisfied. By what? By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. I believe that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection prove not that the service may satisfy you in some earthly way, but that only service unto Christ satisfies in a way that meets those deep longings of your soul. Suffering and service is how we identify with Christ most closely. And only, only when we give of ourselves for Christ will we find ourselves in Christ. 
you can give of yourselves for all kinds of reasons. You can write big checks. You can go feed the homeless. People do it all the time, but they don't necessarily do it by, for, and with Jesus. But when you give of yourself for Christ, you will find yourself in Christ and deeply satisfied. Genuine service, without doubt, will cost you much. It will tire you out. It will disrupt your plans. It will reveal your weaknesses. But it will satisfy your soul. Service by, with, for Jesus satisfies. I pray that we will begin to believe that as a church. I know many of us are thinking right now, I just don't have time, I don't have money. You have something to give. Give it to the Lord, let Him do something amazing with it. And I'll also say this, especially in the context of a church, there are people here in need right now. But none of us have ESP. We live in community and we hear each other's needs and we step up and we begin to serve one another because we love one another. This is where it starts. If we can't love one another like that, if we can't meet each other's needs like that, we dare not go out and try and serve the world. But in order to have that, we have to know each other like family. We've got to love each other like family. We've got to share with each other like family. So if you have needs, please tell a brother and sister in Christ. Tell a pastor. Let us help you. Let us serve you. Let us see what God can do collectively with a little bit we have and be blown away by His glory. Let's pray. Holy Father, we come before You thanking You for all that You have done to make us alive. But Lord, though as satisfying as it is to be in union with You, Lord, You also gave us a ministry. You gave us a commission to go and to love the world as we have been loved and therefore even experience satisfaction more and more and more. I pray You will convince us, Lord, that what we have is Yours. Whatever little bit of energy we have, what little bit of time we have, even the words we have for they are they are to be used to bless. They are be used to proclaim Your goodness and Your glory by serving and loving those around us. Open our eyes to see the needs that are right there. Fight against our flesh, Lord. Help us to fight against the flesh by Your Spirit that causes us to avoid helping. That causes us to make excuses. And let us be driven by the conviction that we will find satisfaction as we suffer with Christ. As we serve in such a way that it hurts, that it tires us out. Lord, let us be a people who are tired out in service to You. Spent for You. Fully satisfied as we go to bed our pillows hit the our heads hit the pillows hard because we have given whatever we had to give. And let us remember, Lord, that our identity is not in how much we serve, but our identity is rooted in the One who served us. It's in His name, Jesus our Lord, that we pray. Amen. Amen. Excuse me. Yeah.
Thank you, Sam. That was um, that was um, very convicting and very um, very timely, I think, for all of us to hear such a message of um, what it means to serve serve Jesus um, with, with our lives. And so um, we come to the place in our uh, the time in our service where we respond uh, to what we've heard uh, through the message. We respond by uh, singing songs of praise, worship to our King. We also respond by taking of communion together as a family. Uh, we can respond also by bringing forth our tithes. Um, I just want to remind everybody that communion is a is a is a supper that we take together, and it is really it really is only for those who are. Christians, those who have given their lives to Jesus Christ, who have professed and possessed faith and trust in what he's done for you on the cross. So if you're not a Christian here this morning, don't come to communion. It's not because we don't want you to have, we want you to have Jesus before you come and, and eat and partake of his body and blood, the, 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 the bread and the wine. Um, so use this time of, of the scene that's going on to, to repent, to confess to him your need for him and ask him to forgive you all of your sins. If you are a Christian but you are also uh, an unrepentant sinner in the sense that you know that you have sinned and you are sinning but you're not repenting for that sin, then this is also a time for you to, to, to confess that sin. If you've hurt somebody here, you know that you have a broken relationship with someone here, then to the degree that you have any control over that, then you really should take care of that first before you come and eat. But we're all sinners and we're all broken, so I don't want to discourage anyone from participating. Uh, if you're a Christian, um, this is a time for you to come um, to be reminded that um, we have a new life in Christ, that we have been redeemed, and um, the shame has been taken, the guilt has been removed. We've been freed from our sin. We've been saved from God's wrath. We've been adopted into the family of the King who is now reigning in victory. Um, secondly, we're reminded when we take communion that we have a renewed life. We're redeemed works that are still in progress. Um, it's not only participating in what God has done, but it is also in what He is still doing. We don't simply repent once. We confess and we repent all the time. The act of communion, unlike any other time or event in our lives, calls Christians to put their sin to death in the light of the fact that Jesus died and He compels us to examine ourselves and repent before partaking. It also reminds us that we have a shared life we are part of a family. We participate together in Christ's death for the church, for us. We see our life born together, growing together, our sin affecting each other, our faith working itself out together. And as I take this, I say to you, and you say to me, I am your brother in Jesus, and I love you in Jesus. Finally, we're reminded that we have eternal life. Jesus told his disciples to do this in remembrance of his death until he returns again. It's not only our life, 
our growth, and our unity. It is our hope. This one meal points us toward the future marriage supper where we will sit with Jesus and feast with Him fully restored. Not only are we memorializing His death for us, we are proclaiming it. Not only are we proclaiming it, we are also participating in the benefits of that death. And As we receive physical nourishment, the meal gives us spiritual nourishment. As we take the bread and cup individually, we do so in unity with one another. So together we affirm Jesus' love for us and the blessings that come from that love. Together and all that all at once, we affirm our sinfulness and our faith in Jesus to cleanse us from all sins. It is a meal like no other, one filled with joy, thanksgiving, and a deep abiding love. So before we take the meal, I'll pray, and then we'll, during the next two songs, we will, uh, or during the next few, what, three songs, four songs, something like that, uh, just you can come forward and take the elements. Uh, dear Jesus, thank you so much for dying for us, for giving us uh, your life, uh, your righteousness in exchange for our sin. And today, as we partake of this holy uh, supper of communion, we remember your passion on the cross. We remember the death that you died for us and the life that you now live for us and the life that you have given us. So as we take the, the, the bread and the wine, we remember your body and blood, your body broken for us and your blood shed for us. And we ask that you uh, restore our faith, that you, 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 uh, you uh, build our faith and our trust and our hope in you as our only way of salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.